preaching this morning is Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25. In your pew Bible, it's page 776. That's Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with the sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they, had, when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray the Lord Lord in the hope that might may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Thank you, Dave. A brilliant magician was performing on an ocean liner But every time he did a trick, the captain's parrot would cry out, It's a trick! He's a phony! That's not magic! Well, the magician continued in his mastery of trickery, and each time the parrot would say the same thing, It's a trick! He's a phony! That's not magic! One evening during a vicious storm at sea, the ship sank while the magician was performing. The parrot and the magician ended up in the same lifeboat. And for several days, the parrot and the magician just glared at each other, neither saying a word to the other. Well, the parrot finally broke the silence, and he said, Okay, I give up. What did you do with the ship? (laughs) Now, perhaps within all of us, there is this kind of fascination with magic. True? I met a guy who prior to coming to faith had an interest in magic, and he learned some tricks from a magician. 
My curiosity, my fascination drove me to ask him, now tell me now, how do you do some of those tricks? Give me the inside scoop. Well, he wouldn't answer the question other than to say, once you know how they're done, it's very disappointing. He did speak, however, to how powerful a person can feel in captivating a crowd and playing with the minds of people. It's pretty heady stuff. That's the nature of power. What are we to believe about power? Well, back 20 years ago or so, if you looked at any local Christian bookstore, you'd see all kinds of books on power. It was the in thing. Power evangelism and power encounters and power preaching. They even had power ties. I mean, power this, power that. It was craziness. Well, make no mistake about it. God's word does not toss around the word power loosely. And we can so easily lose our way in the Christian life when we believe that we can just snap our fingers and then expect to invoke some supernatural manifestation. It doesn't work that way. It never did. We're not promised miracles every single day. For its very definition would suggest that if it happens every day, they'd be called regulars, not miracles. What should we believe about that? What should we believe about power? To be sure, what we have seen already in our study in the book of Acts is that it took tremendous power to launch the early church. It was a time when when signs and wonders authenticated God's message and presence in human lives. But the book of Acts also alerts us to a danger when it comes to signs and wonders. We see such a warning as we come to Acts chapter 8. It seems to be the purpose of Luke, the writer of Acts, And telling us this incident to speak of this warning. That seems to be his purpose here in Acts chapter 8. I hope you have your Bibles open to that. Because as we come to Acts chapter 8 this morning, we see how the Samaritans responded to the gospel. And we see how Simon the magician responded to the power of the Holy Spirit. We see signs and, and wonders that accompanied the message through the human lips of Philip. Now, as is typical of mankind, of the human race, we tend to go to one of two extremes in the matter of signs and wonders. We have excesses, and then we have the other extreme. And by now, you should be aware of my love for the word balance. Balance. Living in the center of biblical tension. Because many conclude, after working through a section like this in Acts chapter 8, that the misuse of power, signs, and wonders is good enough reason to stay clear away from anything that looks like a sign or a wonder. Loved ones, the solution to the many misuses of signs and wonders is not simply to avoid them. Many abuse grace, but that's no reason to stop preaching and extending it to others. There's a warning here for us today as we talk about Simon, but it's not an indictment of signs and wonders. It is a warning for those who fixate on supernatural signs and wonders. There's a warning here for all of us. 
Now, I need to back up for a moment to the context of Simon's perversion of signs and wonders. It's in chapter 8 that we see the Holy Spirit breaking new ground. It's in chapter 8 that there's an expansion of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. It is a gospel that reaches the Samaritans, half-breeds as they were called, as they were viewed. Second-class citizens would be, to put it kindly, in the eyes of others. And when God said to go out into all the worlds, he meant it. And God will, in fact, carry out his purposes of moving his people out beyond their Jerusalem. And what does he use to push them out of their comfort zone? Well, the middle of verse 1 of chapter 8, 8 verse 1, it says, On that day, meaning the day of Stephen's martyrdom and Saul's approval, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now verse 4 adds, Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. What does God use to move them out? persecution. That's often the case. It's when the heat is on that we move out from what is comfortable. Otherwise, we'd just stay there. Now, Philip's a key player in the gospel moving out. We're going to see that this week. We're going to see this also next week. He preaches. He performs signs and wonders, and he has this revival on his hands. And what is true of all revivals is that it attracts both true faith and false believers. You typically find in a revival those who genuinely turn to Christ and those who just want to get in on the action. Well, we come to one who just wanted to get in on the action. We come to another Simon this morning. It's different Simon than, than Chris spoke about last week. This Simon is described as a sorcerer, a magician. And what does Luke, the writer, tell us about Simon? Three things that we're going to see from this passage this morning. Luke tells us about Simon. They had a wrong view of self. He had a wrong view of the supernatural. And thirdly, he had a wrong view of sin. He had a belief in a faulty doctrine. Faith based on faulty doctrine is faulty faith. Follow along as I read verses 9 through 11 as we first see his faulty view of self. Acts 8 verse 9. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery, magic in the city. And he amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. All the people, both high and low, gave him their attention, exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. And they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. Do you see it? Simon was a powerful man. And he used his magic to capture the minds of people. It says he used his sorcery to amaze them, wow them, dupe them, bringing them under his control. That's the thought here when it uses the word amazed. He announced to everybody that he was great. He was known as the great power. In a way, he had a God complex. And for years, Simon was the best thing in town. 
And then one day this revival breaks out and he begins to see his following was dwindling. People were being saved. and That was a real threat to Simon and his ego. And his followers were moving out on him, joining Philip. And so as the saying goes, if you can't beat him, join him. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Notice this, verse 13. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. The gospel's being preached. People were coming to faith. It states that even Simon himself believed and was baptized. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, that rattled me. There are those who may even be baptized, yet have no change of heart at all. There is a believing that does not save. Wow. And what is quite sobering about this section of Scripture is how Simon appeared to be a believer. Even fooling Philip. For he baptized him. And yet I don't believe Simon was truly converted. Oh, oh, I mean, he showed up at church meetings. I mean, he prayed when asked. I mean, he said the right words. He sang the right songs, but his heart was not there. He convinced Philip he was for real. And in the end, Philip baptized an unbeliever. Not knowingly, but unknowingly. Probably done the same. I mean, you can look good on the outside, but God looks where? On the insides. Simon appeared to be the real deal. He was so near to the truth, but he missed it. Why did it happen? How did he miss it? It all started with his faulty view of self. He really thought he was something. Franklin D. Roosevelt and one of his friends talked late into the night one time at the White House And at last, President Roosevelt suggested that they go but into the rose garden and look at the stars before going to bed. They went out and they looked up for several minutes, peering at the nebulae with thousands and thousands of stars. And the president said, all right, I think we feel small enough now to go in and go to sleep. I think we need a dose of that on a regular basis because we get puffed up pretty fast. Next time you're puffed up, go outside, see all the stars, look around, see all the creation. You might feel pretty puny, ready to go to sleep then. Need that adjustment. Simon never got that adjustment. He thought he was hot stuff. Wrong view of self. The end of verse 13 tells that Simon followed Philip wherever he went, which I figured that had to be kind of annoying. (laughs) And that he was astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Note this. Amazement at supernatural power is not true faith. The purpose of the amazement is to point to Jesus Christ. One preacher illustrated it this way. He says, suppose you have a one-year-old child sitting on your lap and suddenly in the window you notice a beautiful bird. You hold out your hand to point to the bird and you say, look, look at the bird. Instead of the child looking at the bird in the window, she looks at your hand and the sign you're making with your finger, right? 
She even tries to imitate the sign by putting out her index finger. She, she sees the sign. She's excited because you're excited. But she never sees the bird. The whole point of the sign is missing. That's what's going on here in Acts chapter 8. Simon, Simon saw the signs that Philip was doing, but he never saw what the signs were pointing to. He never saw the bird in the window. He never saw his need for forgiveness and repentance and the power of the gospel. And he has this faulty view of self that he carries on. But secondly, he has a faulty view of the supernatural. A faulty view of the supernatural. Simon saw all this stuff going on, the laying on of the hands, the receiving of the Holy Spirit, signs and wonders, and he says, I need to get me some of that. Simon approached life with the belief that everything can be bought. Everybody has his price, so he thought. So he tried to buy the power of God to then use in his magic show. And look with me at verse 18. It says, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, and he said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Again, Simon is a man obsessed with power. And when power is our all-consuming narcotic, we will do whatever we can to get more of it, especially when that power is being threatened. And Simon looked at this revival, the salvation as a commodity to put in his bag of tricks. He wanted a bag of miracle tricks. He hung around Philip to see how he might get some of this hocus-pocus so he could use it to build his own kingdom. And Peter, who's brought in along with John because of the magnitude of this revival, has some not-so-nice words for Simon. And verse 20 Peter says to Simon, he says, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. Now, trust me, folks, that is a lot stronger than that in the original. If I said it to you, it would probably shock you. I just chose not to do that. Young ears, not going to do it. But why is it harshness that Peter says to Simon? Because Simon was connecting everything to God, and that is what makes this so dangerous. Simon's view of the Holy Spirit was that he was some, some impersonal force to be used like electricity. And Simon saw the signs that Philip was doing. He got excited about them. He wanted what Philip had, but all for the wrong reasons. Oh, the drug of power. How often... Have we seen power go to the heads heads of individuals of the church and bring tremendous harm to Christ's body? Simon was hypnotized by the lure of power. He was drawn to power and he wanted a piece of the action. What is the issue? The issue we find in verse 21, Peter says, you have no part or share in this ministry. Why? Because your heart is not right before God. The issue here is that Simon's heart was not right before God. All that matters is that our heart is right. The word right, by the way, more accurately is the word straight. Simon's heart is not straight with God. It is crooked. And we continue to see Simon's crooked heart even after this confrontation. Get this. 
what we do when rebuked, when confronted with sin, says a lot about the condition of the heart. And we see here, thirdly, his faulty view of sin. Peter confronts Simon with these words, verse 22. He says, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And how does Simon respond? Look at verse 24. It says that Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. And I ask the question, what kind of confession is that? Is that repentance? I mean, do you see any godly sorrow here? I see that Simon is still all about Simon. He's scared, but not saved. Simon simply what? He didn't want anything bad to happen to him. It's all about self-preservation. We have to watch that when it comes to a sin in our life, when it comes to a forgiveness and asking for forgiveness and and, and an apology. We have to watch for that because sometimes we say, how can I get out of this and save face? And that's my apology. How can I give an apology to you so I can keep my position, so I can not look so bad, not lose my privileges, or, or not get grounded so bad, right? I just say it the right way here. Maybe mom and dad won't be so hard on me. I'm so sorry I did this. Please don't ground me. Please don't ground me. Right? Our apologies so often are all about we don't want to face the consequences. They're self-centered and manipulative. Then true repentance and sorrow of our grievous sin. And Simon is looking to protect his hide. And there's no forgiveness for that. He's still trying to manipulate and control God. Now, if you're still with me here this morning, here's the main point of this story. God cannot be controlled. If you go away with that, praise God. God cannot be controlled. Here's the difference between magical thinking and true faith. Magic claims to enable us to manipulate God so that he gives us what we want. True faith rests and trusts in God to act as he so chooses. You see, magic focuses on the right methods. True faith trusts in a God who sovereignly acts independently of men and in a way that is for his glory and for our best interests. And magic is an attempt to make God our servant. In true faith, we are God's servants. God is not our servant. We are his. God owes us nothing. And there isn't anything we can do to force God to act a certain way. We exist for him, not the other way around. Have to ask the question. Has magical thinking crept into your walk with the Lord? Now, I'm going to challenge your categories a little bit here this morning. Do you believe that if you pray a certain way, then God is obligated to give you what you ask? Do you figure that if you do X, Y, and Z, then God owes you something? How has magic entered into your thinking? Have you ever had this thought? You don't have to show your hands. I don't want to embarrass you because I had to put my hand up too. 
Have you ever had this thought? I have my devotions in the morning, then things should go a certain way during the rest of the day. Is that how it works? Is that why I am to meet with God? Magical thinking. Watch it. Ever think, if I can just muster up enough sincerity, then I can be assured that God will act the way I desire. Have you ever attempted to manipulate God to give you what you desire? Kind of like the scene in the old Burt Reynolds movie. Far away from shore, he's about to drown, and he promised to give the Lord, I don't know, like 50% of his money if God would just rescue him. Remember? It's okay if you don't. It's a horrible movie. I just remember this scene. But as he swam closer to the shore, he adjusted that 50% to 40% and then to 30%. Each step closer and greater the chances of him making it to shore, less was his end of the bargain. And attempting to manipulate God to save him, he promised he was going to keep all the Ten Commandments. He fumbled his way through stating each of the Ten Commandments. And by the end, when it seemed likely he would survive, he promised, I'll just learn the Ten Commandments. Now, we smile at that because at some time in our life, we have all done that. At least in thought. Anytime we go through some religious activity thinking it will cause a certain response from God then we are more to magical thinking than we might care to admit. When your faith turns to a preoccupation with God, solving your problems, bringing you relief, straightening out your mates, making your life work, then there's been a subtle shift from true faith to magical thinking. Am I to turn to God to only use Him to improve my present life? At that very moment, are we much different than Simon, the sorcerer who demanded, give me this ability so that I can? Why do you want it? God, give me this so that I can. Why do you want it? Fill in the blank. Now, interestingly, the word simony was used following this event to speak of illegal buying and selling of ecclesiastical offices. In other words, if you wanted to be a bishop in the big structures of the church, you paid somebody off and you got the job. Simony. And the simony, unfortunately and sadly, has taken place in the evangelical church down throughout history. Oh, it might be a big gift. I give this money to the church now and they're obligated. God's obligated to come through for me. It might be a certain name that you throw around or prominence that you have in the town or charisma to buy you that position or to give you that voice or to give you some leverage. It's wrong. We're never to use money that way. A man called the church office and he asked the secretary if he could speak to the head hog at the trough. The surprised secretary said, Who? And again, the man replied, I want to speak to the head hog at the trough. Sure to have heard him correctly, she said, Sir, if you meet our pastor, you're going to have to speak of him with a little more respect than that and ask for reverend or pastor. But certainly you cannot refer to him as the head hog at the trough. At this, the man replied, Oh, I see. 
Well, I have $30,000 I want to give to the church. <laughs> the secretary said, oh, okay, hold on a second. The pig just walked in the door. <laughs> <laughs> that one's probably going to come around to bite me, but we'll, I'll take that risk. The question, though, is how many of you have used money to get what you want? How have you tried to buy power, position, or voice, or rights? I mean, perhaps we've never offered money for spiritual power, but have we tried to obtain spiritual power in order to promote ourselves? Seeking spiritual gifts for the promotion of oneself is simony. Seeking to be godly so that others will think we are, we are is a form of simony. To use others to advance ourselves and our causes is simony. To want a certain position in order to carry out our agenda or to puff up our own ego is simony. Lord, give me this so that I can what? Magic is contrary to Christianity, yet so often it's confused or combined with it. My concern is this. We have been talking about the marks of vibrancy. And as we consider a vibrant faith, a faith that is alive, a faith that is radiant, a faith that is growing rather than stagnant, our tendency is to think that we find that by following the right method or the right formula or to just get our hands on the latest hot Christian book or that there must be the secret key that will unlock all vibrancy that I'll ever need for the rest of my life. Bogus. We mustn't think for a moment that this vibrancy can be bought or found in anything magical or by simply doing the right thing. This is really my issue with the trends and practices of bandwagon Christianity. Read this book. Recite these renunciations. Follow these steps. Do this for 30 days. Implement this program in your church. And on and on and on it goes. And we splash around in that novelty for a little while until everyone points and says, no, 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 look over here. Here is where it's at. And then we jump out of that pool of water. We splash into a new pool of water until someone again jumps and says, no, 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 it's right here. This is what you want. And around and around and around we go. It's not where it's found. Don't worship the pointers. Don't worship the signs. There's a warning here to us against fixating on the wrong things. Fixating on the vehicles that point us to Christ. We're so prone to this. We hear a good sermon And we fixate on the sermon rather than the reality to whom it pointed. You've heard me say it. I appreciate your gracious comments to me. I really do. They help me to know they connect. But I want you to leave here more than anything else. Not, wow, what a great sermon, but wow, what a great God. That's what I want. And we leave. We hear a beautiful musical production. And we return home talking about the performance rather than what it pointed us to. We read a great book. We're touched by a certain speaker. We worship the pointer, the sign. Let me say it again. Pointers are not immune from attracting attention to themselves instead of Jesus. We do it all the time. We dwell and talk more on the pointer than the reality. The thing it pointed to, Jesus Christ. And we, like Simon, then say, can I have some of that too? 
Can I have some of that power that you're experiencing? Where can I get some? Amazon? CBD? The church in the city? That conference? Where can I get some? Don't worship the pointers, the signs. Worship Christ. Want more of him. Want more of him. A mark of vibrancy is this. It's seeking Christ only and not merely his gifts. It is seeking Christ only and not merely his gifts. I ask the question that I have asked before. If God did not do one other thing for you, would you still love him? A mark of vibrancy is seeking Christ only and not merely his gifts. We are here to know the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other reason for living. He's the point. I am not. We seek Christ only, not merely his gifts. David Needham, in his book, Close to His, tells the story of a missionary in China who found it necessary to be gone from his family for an extended period of time. Aware that this leaving would not be understood by his youngest daughter, he placed in his coat pocket a rare treat in that part of China, a bright red apple to give to her as he boarded the train. Figured that might take the edge off a little bit. Well, finally the moment came, and he embraced his wife and, and each of the older children, and, and then he picked up his little girl in his arms, and he, and he pressed this apple into the palm of her hands, hoping that this special little gift would soften the impact of his leaving. Well, as he got onto the train, and, and it slowly departed train, he saw from behind the apple slipping from her hand and rolling across the platform. Tears were streaming down her face and she ran along the train sobbing, yelling out, Daddy, I don't want what you give. I want you. That's it. God, I don't want just what you give you. Larry Crabb so aptly puts it, until our passion for God is deeper than any other passion, we will arrange life according to our taste, not God's. Until our passion for God is deeper than any other passion, we will arrange life according to our taste, not God's. Watch out for magic and magical thinking. Want him, that's true faith. Let's pray. Lord, forgive me for how often I fall into that. Yes, you do give give good gifts. Yes, you do give us everything we need for life and godly. Yes, you pour out blessing upon blessing. For that, we ought to be thankful. We ought to note that you do that, that you're a God who gives gifts. Yes. But Lord, Forgive us for wanting the gifts more than wanting you. And what if you never gave us another thing, which is an absurd thought? Hypothetical only. Would I still love you? Would I still love you? What if you took everything away? Would I still love you? Help us to want you more, to to realize that just to be with you is better than anything else. Draw us to that, I pray. Jesus' name. Amen.